You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Sarah, you are our resident science fiction guru, so I've got good news for you. We're all about science on this week's episode, the wondrous things they can bring into the world, the visionaries who do things that we never thought possible. You sound like you're trying to sell me on something that seems a little bit more suspicious than you're letting on yeah, yeah, in your just, pitch. Yeah, you step into the laboratory. Don't be afraid. Nothing's going to happen. It's totally fine. You stay away from me with that razor now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. I'll back off. Listeners, we're going to be talking about some weird slash unnatural science in this week's episode. First up, we're going to be chatting about the rather self-explanatory title, They Cloned Tyrone from Netflix. And then we're going to be following up They Cloned Tyrone with a movie recommendation from Kevin in which one character cuts another character's face off and then doves also fly around. No, we're not talking about face off again. (laughs) We will be talking about eyes without a face. Oh man, that's sad that we couldn't work in Nicolas Cage into this somehow, but maybe another time. That's enough weird science for today, I think. (laughs) Yeah, don't want to push things too far on episode 393 of Seeing and Believing. We're here on episode 393 of Seeing and Believing, and Sarah, it's actually kind of... It feels a little bit like with this episode, we're going back to our roots from when you joined the podcast. Way mm-hmm. back when you first started, one of the first watchless segments we talked about was Frankenstein. You know, mm-hmm. with it's all, mm-hmm. it's alive, unholy science stuff. So we've got an entire episode themed around that this week. So <laughs> it's, good. it's like a weird homecoming of sorts. It sure does feel like that. I'm happy to be in familiar territory. Yeah, you, it's... A shame that you didn't think to decorate with bubbling beakers and such around here, but Tesla coils, no? The Tesla coil might have been a little bit of a, I don't know, home inspection um, violation potentially. So we'll keep things (laughs) safe around here and uh, limit the amount of exposed electricity. Okay, well, we'll we'll play it safe, but... The movies we're going to be talking about this week uh, may not play it quite as safe as we are. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite horror films for the Watchlist segment, uh, Eyes Without a Face. Uh, Looking forward to getting your thoughts on that, Sarah. But let's get this unholy science party started right with a look at They Cloned Tyrone. This is Netflix's film about a predominantly black community that's thrown into upheaval when a local man is shot to death in a parking lot, only to show up the next morning, seemingly none the worse for wear. This is John Boyega's Fontaine, a drug dealer who doesn't know what to make of what's happened to him. Now, Given the title, of course, you get no points for surmising that something twisted is going on beneath the surface of this community, but what exactly it is and why it's happening are the big questions on the mind of Fontaine and his friend Slick Charles, played by Jamie Foxx, and Yo-Yo, played by Tayona Paris. Sarah, when a film is asking these kinds of questions about race, societal inequality, and evil science, of course... The first thing that a lot of people's minds will turn to is Get Out. The shadow of Jordan Peele's Get Out looms large over a film like this, but They Clone Tyrone does seek to carve out its own space with its 70s-inspired visuals and a more overtly comedic tone. So my question for you is, do you think it succeeds at carving out its own space in that way? It's funny you mentioned Get Out because the movie that was on my mind watching this was actually Jordan Peele's Us, which came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So okay. a little bit more to do with body doubles and identity. And I think both Get Out and Us do a really good job of kind of walking the line between horror and comedy. Of course, Peele has that background in comedy, so he's very good at pushing those comedic buttons. And here, I think, for the most part, they cloned Tyrone is able to carve out its own space, largely through the aesthetic. And then I also think through the strength of the script writing. Um, There are a lot of very rapid fire sort of off the cuff jokes and a lot of pretty dense dialogue that Jamie Foxx and Tayona Paris especially are able to deliver in a way that just had me, I don't know, almost giddy because it was so much fun to listen to both of those performers deliver the dialogue that was being asked of them. It's kind of a ridiculous premise, but a lot of science fiction is ridiculous. 
And it knows that it's ridiculous, and yet it's willing to take us for that ride anyway. So I enjoyed myself quite a bit. And thinking about Jordan Peele a little bit nonwithstanding, I think this movie is trying to do some slightly different things than what Peele is doing. It's a little bit more expansive. Maybe it's not quite as focused as Peele is on that central metaphor. And personally, I think that the movie is a little bit stronger for that, even if it doesn't quite reach the same heights that your typical Peele movie will get. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you you call out the screenwriting as, as one of the, the film's strengths here, because that was actually... I had a lot of the problem with the construction of this film's story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with you that uh, the look of this film is very distinctive. And I think that it does kind of give it this very distinctive identity. I especially want to call out Franco Giacomo Carbone, the production designer for this film, who mm-hmm. kind of uh, situates this film in this kind of almost no man's land where of course, the uh, the milieu and the vehicles kind of, and even the, the costumes to some extent kind of feel 70s or, or maybe 80s. They feel a little bit earlier, but of course, all the technology is, is you know, late 2000s, 2010s, like cell phones, um, the, the way that... The cinematography, there's like neons uh, in in the lighting scheme. I like that quite a bit. And I think that that look does contribute to making the film feel very interesting. Like It feels like a, a place that's close to our own world, but not quite our own world. And I think that's all to the good when we get into the into the weeds with just exactly how the weird science in this film is operating. Does the uh, thematic thrust and the plot construction work for me as well? Not so much. And I think that I came away from this film largely disappointed because of that. I think it lacks the clarity of, I mean, we've talked about Get Out quite a bit. I'm going to throw out another film that I think is working in similar territory, Boots Riley's 2018 film, Sorry to Bother You, Mm -hmm. which is also about, uh, deals with, issues of race and specifically uh, assimilation, the pressure on black people to assimilate, the way that the dominant culture uh, tends to seek to co-op black culture. Um, that's something that's going on in both that film and this one. But there's something that I found to be a little bit muddled, I guess, in the way that this film twists and turns and the way it kind of expresses its ideas that in the end, I came away from it feeling like it was much weaker than its predecessors. I should probably clarify a little bit. I appreciated the dialogue in the script very okay. much. The plot structure also left me a little bit disappointed towards the end, but I was having a good enough time that I was willing to go along with it, even though not all of those pieces got fully tied off in a way that made perfect sense to me. So as a mood piece, absolutely loved it. Um as a piece of atmosphere and something that feels very unique. I kind of wish that I'd been able to see this movie on a big screen as opposed to just on my home TV. It's gorgeous. Um, And I was curious to know how you felt about that film grain, honestly, because for a moment there, it felt as though like there was a filter that had been slapped on top of whatever had been shot. And then as the movie sort of immerses you into that world, the, the choice made a lot more sense as time went on, especially when you get the contrast of the film grain and then the neon lighting as well. I do agree with you structurally. There is something that feels like it's probably missing a little bit, especially towards the end. But again, I don't know. I'm I'm willing to go for this ride that John Boyega and Tiana Paris and Jamie Foxx are on just because it's so much fun to watch those characters bounce off each other as they try to figure out what their plight is and then also what their responsibility is once they start to get a sense for the fact that something nefarious is happening in their neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, so so talking about those visuals, you know, the the film grain did feel a little bit like it was a an after effects filter sort of slapped over the film. I think there there's something about this picture and like you I would be interested in seeing this on the big screen because there's something about this picture where I don't know if it's if it's underlit or if the film grain uh 
effects that have been added to it just make the f- image seem muddier. But there are, there are parts of this film that were just where the images were just a little indistinct. And it's hard for me to know without seeing it on a bigger screen, whether, you know, that was just the screen I was watching it on or whether that's an actual problem with the the cinematography and the post-production effects that have been applied to the film. Um, all I know is that watching it, I just, I felt like the film grain was kind of a welcome bit of texture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's something that I often miss in a lot of contemporary films that are, um, that are not only digitally shot, but are also color graded in a certain way that really makes them seem very polished, which you know, on one hand can be nice, but it does make you long for the days of the films that this, that this film is intentionally stylistically calling back to where that film grain gives it a, a texture and kind of a, a lived in quality that helps sell the, uh, the more outlandish, elements as something you can sort of immerse yourself in rather than having to literally, you know, hold your belief over your head in in order to suspend it. Um, I, I think that that's a nice idea on the part of Jewel Taylor, uh, who directed and co-wrote the film. I don't know that its execution is done well enough to, ever be anything more than kind of just a bit of pastiche Mm. but it's welcome at least and i do like that the the way that this film is conceived even if it doesn't execute well for me i like the the thought that went into presenting a certain world in this way and really going all in on uh, certain ideas. Yeah, it really does feel like a swing for the fences. And if anything, the movie is just so weird that I respect it for its willingness to put itself out there to give the viewers kind of an anachronistic sort of displaced from time setting in a way that feels especially jarring as those characters go exploring a little bit outside the bounds of their own neighborhood a little bit later on in the movie. We actually get a moment where um, they're driving around and we get to see what a typical, like stereotypical suburb looks like. And it feels very familiar, at least to me. And getting the juxtaposition of these characters and their home turf versus the spaces that they're going to in order to try to find answers um, felt surprising. And it also felt like a bit of a, a welcoming breath of fresh air because this movie isn't trying to do anything that looks like anything else that I've seen lately anyway. So in terms of the set design and then also the costume design, again, very, very welcome. Where I'm wrestling with it a little bit and the pieces that I appreciated, um, I'm curious to know how you feel about this. Um, This movie has a lot to do with questions of identity and assimilation, as you mentioned a little bit earlier. And while I don't think that the movie manages to fully pull off or tie off everything that it's doing, I do think that it does allow for some very interesting grace notes. And I think part of that is the strength of the performances here. Um, It does allow for some interesting grace notes where characters are confronted with who they are and who they have been essentially set up to be by the society around them. And then they have very different reactions to that. So um, it almost feels as though there's like this question of, do I fight it or do I, do I run away from the situation that I've been put into? And John Boyega's character and Jamie Foxx's character in particular have very different reactions to the circumstances that they're up against. And the movie doesn't really draw too much attention to it. So I don't know if it's in the script or if it's just a performance choice or a direct a piece of direction or something else. But the way that John Boyega and Jamie Foxx in particular play their characters' plights and the way that they react to the situation that they find themselves in was something that I really appreciated watching because the movie takes a, a couple of beats just to sit with those characters and the revelations that they're dealing with. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you felt about that, too. You know, I appreciated the <clears throat> the attempts, especially kind of when we get into the third act and the curtain has been pulled back a bit on just what is going on and how Fontaine and Slick Charles and Yo-Yo are kind of 
parts of the the machinery of this community uh without putting too fine a point on it um i did enjoy the quieter beats that jewel taylor gives us uh with fontaine select charles as they sort of process what they've been told and how that just completely recontextualizes everything about their lives um I feel like it doesn't fully work for me, partly because it's the the critique that the movie is making feels a little bit muddled. Um, to go back to Sorry to Bother You, one of the strengths of that film, I think, is that Boots Riley uh, has a lot of clarity on what he is critiquing, uh, who the quote-unquote bad guys are in that film and why they're bad um in they cloned tyrone i feel like there's there's a lot of twists and turns that pile on one one another as the film reaches its end that mostly serve to muddle what exactly jewel taylor is saying about the world in which these characters live and what he's saying about you know, who, who is to blame or what forces are to blame. Mm -hmm. And I think that lack of clarity means that the, the kind of character journey that Fontaine and Slick Charles and Yo-Yo have to go on in order to come to terms with that also feels a little bit muddled by extension. Yeah, I buy that. Um, and again, I think we're just slightly on um, almost like different ends of a divide that's a little bit narrow, probably because while that ending feels muddled, it's something that, I don't know, I, I still was able to track at least with Fontaine's personal journey, even though the entire overarching conspiracy at the heart of this movie didn't quite make sense towards the end. At the very least, it was interesting to watch this character kind of climb out of the hole that he's sort of constructed for himself and take a look around and decide whether or not this is a world that he exists in and a world that he wants to continue existing in or if he wants to try to change it. And I think a lot of that comes back down to those individual character interactions between Fontaine and Yo-Yo and Slick, especially because at a turning point within the film, once the machinery has started to be a little bit more exposed, Fontaine just kind of goes back to his his ordinary, like, everyday routine. And Yo-Yo confronts him and says that this is something that is bigger than you. And when she says that, I think typically when a movie character says something like that, they mean, this is bigger than you and you can't fight it, so why even try? And here Yo-Yo means it to mean the exact opposite. This is something that's bigger than you and therefore it is worth fighting because it's not just about you, it's also about everybody else in the community. So I think where I land on this is not so much disappointment with the overall like plotting, but more so disappointment with seeing how the full community meshes and coheres together because I feel like I got a really good sense of who Fontaine was and why he chose to do the things that he did throughout the movie's runtime. What I didn't get a very good sense of was the cohesion of the entire community as a whole beyond yeah. just individual character interactions. <clears throat> well, I think this is where we get into the problem of like the, the specifics of the plotting and the storytelling actually hampering a lot of these, these big character beats. So that moment you're talking about where Yo-Yo confronts Fontaine and you know, says this is this is bigger than all of us, so we need to fight it. Um, without giving away too much about the specifics of the plot, it's hard to that that confrontation. It's hard to know just how seriously to take that because, based on what we've seen up to that point, it kind of does seem like Fontaine is genuinely powerless, rather than shirking some sort of responsibility hmm. uh, to fight the system. And that, I think, is, is a weakness of the film's critique because is the film saying genuinely that he is powerless and that he can struggle within kind of a circumscribed arena? Or is he saying that he has some sort of responsibility that he's not living up to 
in fighting against that? Is it saying it's it's futile to fight back or is it saying he can generally make a difference? I think the nebulous nature of just how much he and the people around him are being controlled uh, is a weakness of the film and makes it difficult to know just what exactly Jewel Taylor wants the audience to take away from that moment and even the resolution of the entire conflict at the climax. I think you've actually just clarified something that um, I was trying to figure out as I was watching this movie. So the the setting and the trappings feel very of a piece with 1970s filmmaking and specifically with like the sort of paranoia strain that we got in the 70s. And here we get a lot of the appearance of something that was made in the 70s, but the paranoia wasn't quite hitting for me. I didn't feel as though Mm. these characters felt the same sense of desperation that somebody in, say, I don't know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers would have felt. And I couldn't quite tell if that was because of the setting or if it was because of the script writing or something else. And I think part of it might just be slightly different attitudes towards how much power any one individual has. So my suspicion is that 70s cinema feels so much more paranoid because there was, you know, revelations of machinery that people couldn't necessarily control and they genuinely felt powerless against it. And here and now, I think that there is some sort of a thread of that same nihilism in our culture today. But I think everybody feels as though there is something that can be done, even if it's just yelling about it on the internet. And maybe, I don't I don't know, like that feels a little bit half-baked, but that did feel as though there was some sort of a sense of, at the very least, I can talk about it more openly. And so there's something that I could be doing, even if it's literally just talking about the issue. Yeah, um, I mean, part of the problem, I think, is that this film does... In in the way that it resolves its conflict, it's kind of got a very con- tidy, conventional Hollywood gloss on on its topic. Basically, the 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 overall thrust of the film is you know Fontaine starts off as as a drug dealer who's kind of just out to get his, and by the end of the film, he becomes a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that arc is very familiar to anyone who's ever seen a a Hollywood movie, I think it kneecaps the social commentary of the film in in that it's difficult to know how seriously you can take its critiques when it kind of wants to shoehorn it into a conventional hero's story. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, for example, the those paranoid thrillers of the seventies that you're talking about. It's much less about heroic individuals fighting the system and more about just regular people coming to terms with the fact that they are enclosed within something trapped Mm. within something. Mm -hmm. And that crucial distinction, I think is why um, this film just isn't quite landing with me, even as I appreciate the, efforts it's making it critique the the critique feels like it's not quite gelling for me mm, makes sense so i think we've talked a little bit about how senses of humor can be something that like land differently for different people as well and so a lot of what did carry this movie for me was the movie's sense of humor and its willingness to just toss off like pretty elaborate dialogue just at the drop of a hat did any of that work for you or was that something that also didn't fully gel I, I think, I, I mean, it's it's a subjective thing. I was, it's got a few good laughs. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I found it funny enough for me to really um, kind of stop thinking about what wasn't working in the film with me. And maybe that's kind of the crucial distinction between somebody who comes away from this film enjoying it, someone who doesn't, is if the humor really clicks for you, then that probably... Uh, covers over a multitude of of other sins maybe guilty as charged um, <laughs> it does it does have uh, a couple of of good lines there's there's a really good joke about uh one character trying to learn how to convincingly play a part uh and he has to ask well is that book of eli denzel or training day denzel and that's yes. <laughs> that's i i really enjoyed that joke quite a bit i also think that the performances help quite a bit especially jamie fox as slick charles 
Um, I it's been a while since I've seen Fox in an overtly comedic part like this, and it's it's nice. He does a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree with you there. There's a moment where he's telling another character to literally doze off, doze off that had me in stitches because it was the line of dialogue did not fully fit the situation. It felt a little bit underplayed versus what was actually happening on the screen and the delivery of that just kind of a very frantic, okay, you need to fall asleep right now um, was something that I wasn't expecting and I very much appreciated. So a lot of really good delivery from Fox, especially. And and you get the sense too, that Jewel Taylor knew what a strong cast he has because a lot of these, these dialogue driven scenes are shot in pretty long takes. Like we don't get a lot of cross-cutting, a lot of shot reverse shot dialogue scenes. The characters are in a physical space and they move about the space chattering all the while, Mm -hmm. you know, especially Slick Charles is just this, this motor mouthed guy and he's very funny. And because Jewel Taylor doesn't kind of cut the dialogue scenes to ribbons, that really lets Jamie Foxx cook. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a, big strength of the directing of this film. And it's a pretty strong contrast to to John Boyega's performance, I think, which feels a little bit more like your conventional, serious, not action hero, but movie hero, where he's trying to figure out the problem, but he's not really all that interested in quipping. And that also feels a little bit like a throwback to a previous time, because so many of our movie stars today are kind of caught up in a lot of quippy lines as they're trying to go through their day, which is probably a little bit of the Marvel effect, although it's not just a Marvel problem. And it was frankly kind of refreshing to watch John Boyega just sit and be a character who is fairly, I don't know, not passive, but quiet and thoughtful and watching him process information in a very different way than Jamie Foxx's slick does. (laughs) Um, I also found it I, I don't know. I kept thinking about um, John Boyega's turn in Attack the Block, which I think is a 10-year-old movie now at this point. But there were some additional flavors from his performance in Attack the Block that I was reminded of as I was watching this, especially his relationship with one of the neighbor kids. I'm pretty sure in both movies he tells those smaller children to literally like go home and do your homework and go watch cartoons, essentially, and like stay out of danger and trouble. I'm pretty sure that that was an on-purpose reference, but it just it filled me with joy all the while. Yeah, I mean, even even the supporting cast, like I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Kiefer Sutherland mm-hmm. uh, in in films, but I think this the role he has in this film as a as a villainous character, I, I think it's safe to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked him in this, yes. and he I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, he too is kind of finding a comedic rhythm that's really to the benefit of the film as a whole and just he he slips into it like a a well-worn glove it's really well done yeah when i think of him i think of like special agent jack bauer so it was nice to see him in a much different register (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah so i i think that a lot of the individual elements of this film are working really well um i just keep coming back to i just there's enough clarity in, in some of the critiques of of certain elements of society that make me wish the whole gelled together a little bit better. I'm thinking specifically of how about halfway through the film, the characters visit a church service. And by this time mm-hmm. uh, we, we know that there's, there's something going on beneath the surface. There's, you know, chemicals in various uh, foods and products that are contributing to the uncanny nature of this, of this community. And they find out that, in church, uh, this this black church that nevertheless has a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus hanging over the altar, mm-hmm. uh, it's in the communion wine. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was interesting how Jewel Taylor's kind of making a almost Marxist critique about religion being the opiate of the masses in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what your take was on that. I mean, not just religion, but I think that specific flavor of Christianity was what he seemed to be getting at. Um, a lot of the uncanniness seemed to be around exploiting things that were stereotypically black, and then also something that is both a rallying point, and then something that could potentially also be used to potentially divide the community. And 
I do think that that's a pretty smart use of the communion wine specifically. I don't know that it goes much beyond the surface there, but it was something that did catch my eye, especially that white Jesus presiding over the altar. Um, I don't know if there's much else to be said about it, to be perfectly honest, but at the very least, that felt like a cutting use of visuals that didn't explicitly say, like, this is something that is, I don't know, inherited from... um, a religion that could also potentially be being used to exploit people in this particular situation. I don't know. It it seemed like an interesting critique, but it seemed like a half-baked critique, if that makes sense. It, I, yeah, I mean, it would have been, like I said, it would have been nice to have a little bit more clarity in, in the critiques because there's something there. Uh, it would have been nice to see it teased out a little bit more. At least we have Jamie Foxx kind of swooping in at the end of that sequence to sort of bemusedly say uh something like it's been a long time since i've been to church but i don't remember it being like this yes (laughs) nice line delivery there for sure Mm -hmm. well listeners that is our review of they clone tyrone it is currently streaming on netflix so you can catch it there if you have a subscription if you've already had a chance to catch it let us know your thoughts about any of what we talked about or anything that you particularly Uh, liked or that didn't work for you with this film you can always let us know by reaching out to us on letterboxd our handle over there is cbelievepod you can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com we're gonna take a little break and then move on to the watch list with eyes without a face And now it's time for the conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. Now, Sarah, over the past week, you were on vacation. You were on the Outer Banks having a grand old time. Mm -hmm. I promise. Well, I'm a little bit envious, I guess. (laughs) Um, Because you are out and uh, I am uh, untwittered, I did not have a Sunday poll question to pose to our listeners out there, but we nevertheless did hear from somebody who had a recommendation for us. Yeah, we did. So Zach Malm of the Veterans of Culture Wars podcast um, reached out to me and said that um, as he was listening to our Barbenheimer episode, um, he had a recommendation about additional Satoshi Kone movies. I'm no anime expert, but I think I've seen all his stuff, including the great show Paranoia Agent. But this particular recommendation is one that I think that you specifically would flip over. Um, And this is the section Magnetic Rose from the anthology film Memories, which came out in 1995. Satoshi Kon wrote it didn't direct it, but it's what led to him getting to direct. It's the best short in the anthology film Memories. Looks like it's on Prime and Apple Plus these days. And he did try to sell me on it by saying that it has space marines, horror, surrealism. Trust me on this one. It's all you, which (laughs) Zach sold. I have not had the chance to sit down with it yet, but I will be the moment I do. I mean, it does sound like Zach has your number. That sounds right up your alley. Definitely. Uh, And you know what? Like I'm intrigued specifically by the fact that that's in anthology film mm-hmm. i would really like to see more anthology films get made these days mm-hmm. like I, I just remember what the be- how much fun the ballad of buster scruggs was not yes. that's not necessarily an anthology film but just kind of a film that's a series of almost short films that all are kind of tied together i there, there's something about that that's just immensely pleasurable to watch and i would be interested in any anthology film that has Satoshi Kon as part of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I mean, again, totally sold on that one. Yeah, I don't know. Other than the Coen Brothers, I can't really think of very many other anthology films that have come out lately. They tend to all be genre. Like I'm thinking of VHS, which I think was a collection of short horror stories. But um, other than Hail Caesar and Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I can't think of anything that has come out lately that I've appreciated all that much. Yeah, I, I know that uh, Jewel Taylor, who, you know, the, the writer-director of They Clone Tyrone, did do a, an anthology film with uh, James Franco, of all, all people. He directed a segment in the anthology film uh, Actors Anonymous, huh. which I have not seen. Don't know if I'm all that interested in seeing it. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of Franco as a filmmaker as I am of him as an actor, but they're out there if you know where to look, but I'd like to see a lot more of them. Yeah, I'd definitely be on board with that too. Thanks for writing in, Zach. Thanks for that recommendation. 
your recommendation might have been for Sarah as that is right up her alley, but I might be stealing that for my own use. So we really appreciate it. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen, and we view it, and then we review it right here. Been a little minute since we've done the watch list, so mm -hmm. this feels like the triumphant return um, of a segment that I like very much. So, Kevin, for this week, you chose Eyes Without a Face, the 1960 film by Georges Franjou. And within this movie, it's a French horror film, Dr. Genassier is a brilliant plastic surgeon who has made advances in transplanting skin tissue. But when his daughter, Christiane, has her face disfigured in a horrible car accident, Dr. Genassier turns to his own medical practice and also some slightly more unsavory means kidnapping young women with the help of his assistant Louise in the hopes that he'll be able to transplant one of the kidnapped women's faces on the face of his own daughter, making her whole again. So there feels like some connective tissue here between this and they cloned Tyrone. Um, they're both horror adjacent or horror straight up. Stylish period pieces about identity. And honestly, this is a movie that I wish that I'd kind of watched in October because it felt like a movie that was very... I don't know, of a piece with spooky season. So, mm. Kevin, you did mention that this is one of your all-time favorite horror movies, and I'm curious to know what about it you like so much. Yeah, so, you know, there's lots of horror films that that scare me or unsettle me. Um, I think it's much more difficult for any horror film to haunt the viewer and mm. i feel like eyes without a face is one of those that absolutely succeeds this is a film that haunts me the way that uh Genessier's mission is this it, it's this horrible corruption of a father's love for his daughter mm -hmm. um the dark places that it leads him to and the way also in which his uh his unsavory quest um, she's physically disfigured, but by the end of the film, it's by being the object of his obsession, she becomes almost spiritually, not disfigured, but she becomes spiritually other. She almost seems ethereal, uh, not inhuman, but non-human. Mm. And uh, it's just watching it again this time, I was struck by how the soundtrack and the cinematography in this film just give it kind of this this ghostly quality that's difficult to put my finger on i think that's why it could only have been a film or the story could have been in any any number of forms but specifically by being a film it's able to kind of create this aura around itself simply through its visuals that can't be replicated any other way I will always just have that final image of Christian walking off into the night with the with the birds mm -hmm. um, and the and the trees and the way that they're lit, making it look you know skeletal and stark, but also beautiful and ethereal at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's utterly singular, and so I I really really like it. I'm excited to know what you have to think say about it, though. I really dug this movie. Um, <clears throat> Largely on the merits of that haunting quality of the atmosphere, um, I kept thinking about silent film while I was watching it, and not in a comparing it to other better movies, because I think this movie very much holds its own against everything else, but there were some callbacks, I think, to other films that kind of layered on that haunting quality, specifically when Genessier is ascending the staircase to see Christian for the first time that we see her within the film. The shot is reversed, so he's ascending from right to left upwards, but it recalls the shot in Nosferatu when the vampire mm. ascends the staircase up towards his victims. And that told me everything that I think I needed to know about his relationship with his daughter because he doesn't really view his daughter as her own person. He views her as an object and as a source of guilt. I believe it's mentioned at some point that he was the one who caused the car accident that disfigured her face in the first place. And he also views her as his responsibility to fix, even though she is her own person. And 
I, I would be very curious to read um, kind of a disability studies commentary on this movie, specifically to do with Christiane's appearance, because her face has been disfigured. Um, and that will certainly affect the way that she moves throughout the world through the rest of her life. But it's not as though she's become anything other than human, other than the ways that Dr. Genessier and his assistant Louise treat her. And I don't know, I feel like I'm going to be grappling with that for a little while. Maybe haunted? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I, only time will tell, I guess. I, I, I'd i be interested in that in a read uh of this film that focuses on what it has to say about disability. I find the commentary it has about science mm. to be in the same vein, kind of uh, compelling in that way in that, you know, Genesia is a man with very specific skills. And when you have a science hammer, everything looks like a science nail yes. and he, and the way that, um, his obsession with using his skills to fix something that he sees as broken, I feel like that's um, a very interesting commentary on the way a certain sort of rationalism in humanity thinks that if something is not the way we want it to be, then it must be broken and it must be fixed. Hmm. And it must be fixed through our own arts. Um, I mean, that seems, all, you know, that's, Edenic almost the the way that the Adam and Eve like they they see there, there's a perceived problem and the only way to fix that problem is to fix it themselves mm -hmm. and in doing so they fall and it's interesting to see how this film frames science in that way and in the end it becomes not just a problem of you know science bad but more just the way that Genesier's rationalism has has warped him um the way that he he sees himself throughout the film basically as the hero uh the the opening of the film you know he uh the his latest victim gets found in in a river and the police think this might be his daughter who has mysteriously disappeared after his accident and they bring him to the morgue and he says that the corpse yes that is my daughter and they hold a funeral he buries the the body in in a mausoleum and he even like arranges the flowers just so because he 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 likes order and the way that he's played by pierre brasseur he's he's so matter of fact even though he is literally looking at his own murder victim lying about it in order to cover his tracks being cold towards the victim's father mm -hmm. walking out of the morgue and then has the gall to bury that body in his own family mausoleum and just rearrange the flowers so it looks nicer that's it's chilling but it also is i think kind of perceptive on the way that uh, the human capacity just self delude into thinking you're the hero of your own story, even when you have become uh, utterly monstrous. Yeah, my daughter has been hurt, and this other person has been hurt in the same way, and I'm going to take both of those on myself and then treat everybody else horribly if they have the gall to suggest that they might also be hurting in a similar way, too. That line that he gives to the grieving father who's turned up to the morgue to see if it's his daughter who is. Um, been washed up out of the river is that um, I, th I think he tells the, the grieving father, like, at least you have hope as in like, how dare you be upset that your daughter might be missing because at the very least your daughter might still be alive. When Knowing knows. full well. <laughs> yeah. It's upsetting. And yeah, I, I just, I don't know what to do with that other than to say that's awful. And also that seems like a very astute observation of, of human nature when you're so caught up in your own problems that you can't really see what's going on with anybody else around you, even and especially if you're the one who has hurt them yourself. I don't know. It's, it's very deeply chilling. And I think it's also doubly chilling that in his quest to try to fix, quote unquote, fix his daughter, he's inflicting the exact same wounds on everybody else that he comes into contact with. Because he doesn't really see any of them as being worth much other than as something that he can exploit in order to be able to change his own daughter's appearance. And yeah, again, deeply upsetting. <laughs> the 
image of the mask that Christiane wears throughout the film, I think, I mean, it's it's iconic. There have been other films that have called that image back specifically because it's so it's creepy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it, but it's also just so suggestive of so many things. The the way that she's uh, number one feels the need to wear a mask, or or at least her father feels the need to make her wear the mask. Um, the way that mask is just the, the eeriness of utter perfection. Like the the mask is you know totally smooth. There's no flaw in it. Um, it's in in some ways kind of like this is what Genesier is aiming for is to give her a mask of flesh mm-hmm. and, and to have it be as flawless and as smooth as the mask itself. Um, and the way that that kind of renders her like he, he dehumanizes her in giving her that mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when she, you know, kind of goes dancing off into the night with the birds Maybe she'll be happier with the birds than with than among all the people. I just think that that's what I mean when I say this haunts me is just it's not f- scary, although there are moments of this film that are kind of, especially by 1960 standards, pretty gnarly. Mm-hmm. But just the 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 kinds of violence in this film that are most intense aren't gory at all. Mm-hmm. And I, that's part of the reason why i just i think about it so much i think it's crucial that christiane walks off into the woods with the mask still on her face Mm -hmm. i wouldn't go so far as to say it's a reclamation of that identity but it does feel like some sort of an acceptance or maybe even assimilation of that into Mm. something that she is um it is a beautifully creepy image and i do want to call out edith scobb's performance as Christian because it's a beautifully physical performance. She's not really saying all that much here. And when she is talking, most of the time you can't see her face because it's either hidden by a camera angle or hidden by the mask itself. But the way that she holds herself and the way that she behaves both when she's alone and then when she's with Louise or with Dr. Genessier, her father, um, she it feels almost as though she's been sort of molded into somebody that she isn't. And some of that is that mask appearance that she has. And then some of that, I think, is just the very controlling nature that her father is trying to exert. You mentioned him rearranging the flowers in the mausoleum. But I think the thing that he does that I find almost the most chilling is after a supposedly successful facial transplant, The three of them are sitting around the dinner table together and Christian finally is maskless. She looks like she has a normal face again. And Dr. Genessier tells her, smile, smile. And then he tells her, but not too much. And the fact that he's trying to regulate the way that she even just exists and expresses herself even after he's given her everything that she needs in order to be able to do that, I found just deeply upsetting because if he's going to go so far as to control the way that she smiles, like what else is he going to try to control? I mean, obviously he's going to try to control the way that she looks and appears and he'll go to extraordinary lengths to do it both on that initial surgery. And then again, when it finally does fail, but Just that simple command to smile, I found to be very deeply chilling. It's like, uh, it's almost like a horror version of the Pygmalion myth, Mm. where um, instead of creating, you know, in in the myth, Pygmalion, you know, he makes the statue and then he falls in love with the statue. In this film, Genessier has an image in his mind of what he wants his daughter to be or to return to. And he's in love with that. And then he goes about shaping her into that icon that he's got in his head um and that's it is upsetting to see some somebody just so laser focused on a goal like that that um even Mm -hmm. the person he claims to love most in the world is is a means to an end Mm -hmm. for him and you begin to wonder does he love his daughter or does he love the idea of using his skills to the uttermost uh, in perfect in, in pursuit of a perfection that other people can't hope to attain. Like there's, 
it's I don't know it, I'm I'm running out of words to say it, it is it's chilling um, in a way that I think uh, horror is particularly good at nailing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in, it's an outlandish premise, but also the more you buy into it, the more it gets under your skin. Yeah, literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean. The premise is outlandish, but it also feels very true of that kind of control and that kind of arrogance toward one's art and craft, I think. Um, I will say, though, those surgery scenes are also very deeply upsetting. I, I don't think I was expecting to see a razor actually enter somebody's face. And this movie does that and it goes there and it does so in a way that you can definitely tell that it's a movie that was made in the 1960s. I, I think that it's possible to see the seams, but the movie commits to the story that it's telling in a way that makes those artistic choices make perfect sense and also makes me believe them. And I don't know, just watching somebody cut somebody else's face off was not on my bingo card <laughs> <laughs> for this movie. And also I think was was very deeply affecting because he's literally erasing the identity of this other person as well. He's taking her face off of her in order to impose it on somebody else. So kind of a double erasure in a way. Mm. And that works beautifully as an element of symbolism, but it also just works as a horrifying concept that somebody could do to another person. Like you could think about this movie as a metaphor, but it also just works as a scary story too. Yeah, that's I, and I think that's kind of what really good horror movies can do is they they aren't they aren't sort of we, we've talked about this on the show before where some uh, more uh, contemporary horror films are kind of just they're all about that metaphor to the point where you can't really engage with it as anything but. Uh, a metaphor or a theme Mm -hmm. and it's kind of more about connecting the dots rather than letting it affect you and work on you and i I think eyes without a face manages the the perfect balance where yes it does have things to say about identity and the various ways that violence can be inflicted on by one person upon another but it's also just a scary story uh i think the the title that originally was appended to this film when it was released when it got a stateside release was something like the torture chamber of dr faustus Hmm. like this was marketed as not as sort of a euro art house horror film but as like you know this is really gonna squick out the 1960 audiences and i think that that's that's really telling even though you know watching it now what i find so indelible about it is that atmosphere and are those those artistic flourishes that take it from being again just as like it's both at the same time it's not just a scary story it's also something that is deeply affecting and in its own strange way poetic Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot to do with the power of suggestion i think here and because the movie doesn't tell me all that much about Christian when I was first watching it, I was a little bit nervous that the movie was also making this character out to be an object herself. But by the end and by that final parting shot where we watch her walking away into the woods and essentially removing herself from the story, I think I was a little bit more sold on it because the movie's erasure of her as a character feels like it is partly of a piece with Dr. Genassier's erasure of his daughter as a person and also works as just, I don't know, like it, it feels as though the erasure is happening in real time and it's also something that she is still able to effectively rebel against. But I think the thing that haunted me the most as I was watching it was I wasn't entirely sure how complicit she was in all of this, mm-hmm. how much of this that she is willingly going along with how much of it she's even fully aware of. And so with each new revelation that, oh, no, she knows what's happening, made me feel a little bit more nervous about her as a character, also deeply unsettled me, made me worry about like the, the state of well-being of everybody else within this town who might possibly come into contact with this family. And then also made me feel deeply relieved when she does finally end up deciding to just 
leave, like walk away, release all of the animals from their cages down in the basement and then disappear into the woods with them herself too. Um, it's a beautifully, I don't know, like just elegant moment where she just opens up all of the cages and then she walks out too. And so much of this movie happens without dialogue and words, but that final sequence in particular, like I don't know that anybody says anything for the last five to 10 minutes of the movie. And I don't think that they need to because you get everything that you need from the marriage of moving image and sound and score. Can we talk about the score? I think it's really cool. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I mentioned it at the, the beginning of the segment because it is, it's not necessarily what you would expect. Like the, the opening, se- the credit sequence at the beginning, it's like the, the main theme is basically like circus music almost, mm-hmm. which is not at all what you would expect. From, you would expect this, this to lean more into sort of like kind of what we would expect from a horror movie motif. The fact that it's kind of this jaunty tune is a fantastic counterpoint and one that would net if i were directing a movie like this would never have occurred to me in a million years to use it kind of reminded me of the score for the third man with the zither Uh uh-huh yeah yeah just that that counterpoint because that's also a very bouncy score and it gets repeated every time i think the main character starts looking for his friend and here that opening sequence score I'm pretty sure is mostly just used whenever Louise is looking for a new victim too. And it takes on a tinge of menace the longer the movie goes on as well. I don't think anything changes. I wasn't paying too close attention to the notes, but it felt as though it was the same thing being played every single time. And every single time you just get that additional layer of this woman's been successful before she's going to be successful again. (laughs) And you also have that like note of, almost joy in the back of your head as you're watching her do that and wondering if she's going to be able to get away with it. it it's a little bit reminiscent also of the way that the murderer and Fritz Long's M whistles in the hall of the mountain King. Mm-hmm. Like that, again, kind of this, this, this jaunty tune that announces his presence or announces the fact that he's on the hunt. The hunt has begun. Um, and it's, it's unsettling, but again, it's, it's menacing, but not in an expected way. <laughs> and I don't know. I'd be very interested to know if Franju was it was an M fan. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was on the brain. I certainly think that a lot of other films of that era were movies that he was thinking of too. Like we mentioned Nosferatu as well. I think he's using a lot of that imagery and those juxtapositions to really great effect. And it's not like he's just co-opting or stealing something from a greater movie because I think this movie is about on par with those other ones too. Like it's, it's just, it's a really good film in a surprising way. Yeah. I, you know, I, I hadn't made this connection until just now. It, it does feel a little bit indebted to kind of the early German cinema. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't have kind of the, the radical production design of something like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's, it's recognizably our world. And I think, it's able to do that because it is a horror film, you know, in its own way, it's, uh, it's a horror film. That's not about being in this exaggerated horror setting. It's about being in our world and the horror being present anyway. Mm -hmm. And the way that we get that stark lighting on the tree branches at night that make them just stark white against a black background or the way that, uh, Christian moves with, you know, that, silent film star gravity Mm -hmm. um the way you know the the whiteness of her mask kind of almost recalls the way that some silent film stars kind of they were made up in a way that made them very stand out i guess among the rest of the screen i don't know that i hadn't made that connection until now but i like that reading and i i would be very surprised franju weren't a german expressionism fan (laughs) yeah I mean, it made me even more of one as I was watching this too. So yeah, well, I'm glad you liked it. Good recommendation. I was really happy to have the chance to revisit it myself. Maybe I'll revisit it again around a spooky season in in October. Yes, listeners, that is our review of Georges Ranju's Eyes Without a Face. If you were watching along with us, very interested to know what you made of it. You can hit us up on Letterboxed or over email, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Sarah, we're going to be going back to the Miyazaki well for next week's Watchlist segment. I'm looking forward to that. You bet we are. Um, I don't know. After a lot of doom and gloom and death and destruction, um, 
I think I need a little bit more of that, but inflected with Miyazaki's tone, I Mm. think. Um, So we will be talking about Howl's Moving Castle, which is an adaptation of the same book by Diana Wynne-Jones. Very different from the book. It's got a bit of a reputation for that, but um, I really love this movie and I'm excited to talk about it on the podcast. I'm looking forward to deepening my Miyazaki knowledge as well. Listeners, if you want to watch along with us on that film, you can stream it for free if you're an HBO Max subscriber. It's also available to rent on demand on other streaming platforms as well, so you can find it there. And uh, we are going to be pairing it with another animated film, Mm -hmm. the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, I believe is the subtitle on that. It is. We're going to be talking about that next week and pairing that with Howl's Moving Castle. And it's in theaters now. So if you want to catch up with it before our episode next week, you certainly can do that. Yeah, you definitely can. Very interested to know how those two will dovetail in our discussion next week. But that'll do it for the discussion this week. So listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Seeing and Believing, of course, is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.